Hey guys, welcome to another episode of Bedtime with Dan. I uh, hope you enjoyed that first story about Prometheus. It's always one of my favourites. Um, this chapter is called The Ascent of the Olympian Gods. So, I hope you enjoy. And let's uh, let's end this Wednesday well. In the beginning, speak to me, muse. Give me words to recount the miraculous births of the gods. From the very beginning until now, the regime of Father Zeus. In the beginning, there was nothing. Picture it as a gap, a void filled with swirling movement, not emptiness. There was nothing that held it together, nothing distinct, nothing measurable by any form of measurement. There was no borders or limits, but within the void appeared Gaia, the earth just as when building a house the foundation comes first. And in the depths at the lowest extent of the deep-rooted Gaia was Tartarus, the place of punishment, the world beneath the world. Earth and Tartarus emerged spontaneously, but love is the fundamental creative force. Love, coeval with Gaia, governs the subsequent stages of creation. Gaia and Tartarus were surrounded by the darkness of night, but night blended with darkness and bore brightness and day. And so time came into being, measured by the onward rolling day and night. But herself Gaia, the earth, bore Unirus, the heaven, to cover her completely. Heaven lay with earth, and she conceived and bore ocean. The water encircling the continents of earth and Tethys, the waterways within the continents of Earth. From the Pacific mingling of the waters to the Earth was clothed, and from the mingling of Earth, Uranus there emerged. Among many other children, the Titans, twelve in number, Kronos and Rhea, Hyperion and Theria, Lactus, the father of Prometheus, and the rest of the gods of old. Their names now are mostly unfamiliar, for these were the days of yore. Under the rule of Kronos, the world was of a different order, and it is not easy to comprehend it, except to say that it was primitive. Wide shining Thera bore for Hyperion the blazing sun, the radiant moon, and the rosy-fingered light of dawn, which gently fills the sky even before the sun rises. Helios, the sun god, drives his golden car across the east to the west and sails in a golden vessel each night on ocean back against the coast, back again to the east. Helios had a son called Thelion, the gleamer, who was allowed by his father in a moment of weakness to drive his chariot for one day. Much later in the earth's history, but none apart from Helios can control the blaze chariot drawn by four indefatigable uh, steeds. And Patheon, hurled to earth in a ball of flame, much of earth's surface was scorched and became desert, and the skin of those dwelling there was burnt black for all time. Patheon's sister was turned into trees, and the heavy tears of grief they shed for their brother solidified as amber. In later times... Sister Selina, the moon, and Eos, the dawn, fell in love with a mortal man. Endymion was a shepherd 
who slept each night in a mountainside cave in Korea. Selena caught a glimpse of a man from on high, and as her pale gleam fell on the features, she fell too. Such is the force of love's attraction. Every night she lay with him while he lay cradled in sleep, not knowing that this his reality was stranger than any dream. Selena loved him so much that she could not bear the thought that he would age and die. She implored Zeus to let him remain as he was, and the father of gods and men granted Hendemion eternal youth and eternal sleep, except that he woke each night with Selena visiting him to satisfy her longing. Eos enjoyed numerous affairs, for once she went to bed with Ares, and in jealous anger, Aphrodite condemned her to restless adore. Once, one of those with whom she fell in love with was a proud hunter, Ithonos. As handsome as are all the princes of Troy, and she begged Zeus that her mate should live forever. Zeus granted her wish, but the love befolded goddess had forgotten to ask also to, for eternal youth for her beloved. In the days when their passion was new and graceful goddess bore Menion, destined to rule the Ethiopians for a time and meet his end before the walls of Troy. But as the years and centuries passed, Thenos aged and shrank until he was no more than a grasshopper, and Eos shut him away and loved him no more. If asked, he would say that the death was the dearest wish. If asked, he would say that death was his dearest wish. And Helios, who dallied for a while with the mortal maid, Luicatheo, by name, he thought of nothing but her, and for the sake of glimpse of her beauty, he would rise too early and set too late. After dawdling on this way, until all the seasons of the earth were away, the god had to consummate his lust, or the chaos would continue. He appeared to her as her own mother, and dismissed her handmaidens, so that he could be alone with her. Then he revealed himself to her. She was flattered by his ardent attention and put up no resistance. But when her father found out, he buried her alive by night so that the sun might not see the deed. And by the time morning came, there was nothing he could do to revive his beloved. But, planted as she was in the soil, he transformed her into a frankincense bush, so that her sweet fragrance pleased the gods for all time. Now, Uranus, the starry sky, loathed his children, not just the twelve titans, but the three cyclopses, one-eyed giants, and the three monstrous Hickenton shears, each with fifty heads and a hundred hands. Each time a child was born, Uranus seized it and shoved it back inside its mother's womb, deep in the darkness of the earth's innards. In the agony of her unceasing labour pains, Earth called out to the children within her, imploring their help, but they were still and cowered in fear of their mighty father, all except crafty Kronos, the youngest son. Only he was bold enough to undertake impious deed. He took the sickle of adamant that his mother had forged and lay in wait for his father. Soon Uranus came to her lie with earth and spread himself over her completely. Cronos emerged from the folds where he was hiding, wielding his sickle, and with one mighty stroke he sliced his father's genitals and tossed them far back over his shoulder. The blood as it scattered here and there 
and spilled on the soil gave rise to the giants and the furies, the Gauls who sometimes, with grim irony, are called the Eumenides, the kindly ones. They protect the sacred bonds of family life and hunt down those who deliberately murder blood kin. They drink the blood of the victim and hound the hapless criminals to madness and blessed release of death. They are jet black, their breath is foul, and their eyes ooze suppurating pus. But the genitals themselves fell into the urging sea near the island of Cythera and were carried on currents to sea-girt Cyprus. From the foam that spurred from the genitals grew a fair maiden, and she stepped out from the white-capped waves onto the island grass grew under her splendid feet. The seasons attended her and placed on her head a crown of gold and fitted her with earrings of copper and gold flowers. Around her neck they placed finely wrought golden necklaces that the eyes of all might be drawn to her shapely breasts. Her name was Aphrodite, the foam-born goddess, and there is none among men and gods who could resist even her merest glance. She is known as the Lady of Cythera and the Lady of Cyprus, and henceforth love become her attendant. Cronos, the youngest of the children of Uranus, usurped his father's place as ruler of the world, but inherited his fear, the typical fear of a tyrant. For his parents warned him that he is in turn would be replaced by one of his sons. Each time then that a child was born of Rhea, his sister wife, he swallowed it to prevent its growth. Five he swallowed in this way, Hestia, Dementa, Hera, Hades and Poseidon. Pregnant once more, Rhea appeared to her mother Earth, who promised to rear the sixth child herself. And so, when her time came, Rhea went and bore Zeus deep inside a Cretan cave, where to Crono she gave a boulder, disguised in swaddled clothes for him to swallow. In the cave on Mount Deity, the infant Zeus was fed by bees and nursed by nymphs, daughters of Earth, on goat's milk, foaming fresh and warm from the udder. Young men mounted dwelling Curates wove outside the cave a martial dance and clashed their spears on their shields to cover the sound of infant wailing. As he grew older, Amethia, the keeper of the goat, brought the boy all the produce of Earth in an old horn. And so the mountain of Crete are sacred ground, and even now the Cretans summon the god by means of dance, and he replenishes their hearts and their crops, and Zeus flourished and grew in might, and in his heart he nurtured his mother's dreams of vengeance, war against the Titans. Zeus laid his plans with skill and cunning, with his witchy consult Metis, whose name means skill and cunning, there was nothing this shape-shifting daughter of the ocean and Theas didn't know about herbs, and she concocted for Zeus a powerful drug, strong enough to overcome even mighty Kronos. Together, and with the help of Grandmother Earth, he drugged Kronos with narcotic honey, and while he was comatose, they fed him the em emetic. The result was exactly as intended. Kronos vomited up, in order, first the boulder, still wrapped in moulded rags, and then Zeus's brothers Poseidon and Hades, and then his sisters Hera and Dementa, and finally, oldest 
and youngest, for the forthcoming war, for war was inevitable. These were Zeus's bosom allies. Cronos, for his part, was joined by all his fellow Titans and their offspring. With the notable exception of Themius, for right, for right was on Zeus's side and victory was destined to be his. Zeus made his headquarters on Mount Olympus in northern Greece, while Cronos chose Mount Othyres a little to the south. This was the first war in the world, and there has been none like it since. For ten years, the conflict raged ceasingly and without result. For ten years, earth and heaven resounded and shook with a frightfully din of battle. Neither the Titans nor the Olympians gained the advantage. Long ago, in the early days of the war, Prometheus, resident on Olympus with his mother Themis, had offered Zeus some advice. Still in prison deep within Gaia were the hundred hand were the hundred handers and the cyclops. Zeus considered them too monstrous, too hard to control, but now he was desperate to break the deadlock. He extracted from them the most solemn oath that if he released them and armed them, they would be his grateful allies. The former could hurl boulders the size of hills with their hundred hands, while the latter, cave-dwelling smiths, could create for Zeus his weapon of choice, the thunderbolt, the missile that accompanies a flash of lightning, and at the same time they weighed weapons for his brothers in their forge, a trident for Poseidon, and a cap of invisibility for Hades. The earth and the seas and the heavens resounded as hammers met anvils, the sparks were in the stars in the sky. Now Zeus sailed forth from Olympus, the Acropolis of the world, and confronted his enemy face to face, hurling lightning and thunderbolts in swift succession. He overwhelmed the enemy. The land blistered and blazed with fire, and the waters boiled. Steam and flame rose and filled the sky. It sounded as if the earth and heaven had collapsed into each other with a ghastly crash. It looked as though all the subterranean fires of the earth had boiled up from the depths and erupted on the surface of the earth. The heat of Zeus's missiles enveloped the titans, and the blazing lightning blinded them. Meanwhile, Icarus, half goat and half fish, the foster brother of Zeus from the Cretan cave, blew a trumpet blast on his magic conch shell and sowed panic in the titan ranks. And now the hundred handlers played their part. As thick and fast as hailstones, huge boulders rained down on the titans, darkening the sky and crashing in even Kronos. Overcome, the titans were bound and sent down to the gloom of Tartarus, from where nothing and no one can escape, but through the pardon of the ruler of all. It is like a gigantic jar, with walls of impenetrable bronze, and its entrance is stopped with three layers of darkness and guarded by a hundred handlers. It is the place of utmost punishment, lying as far beneath the earth as the heavens above it. Nine days it would take a blacksmith's anvil to fall from the edge of heaven to the earth, and a further nine days still to reach Tartarus. But easy through the descent may be, the return journey is impossible. And so the sons of Uranus mostly passed from unknowing. For no bard sings in praise of the defeat, the noble and the misguided Atlas, for allying himself with his uncle Kronos, is forever compelled to shoulder the tremendous burden of the heavens. The female Tartans, Leto, Memory, Theus, Phoebe, Themis, Thea and Rhea, 
were allowed to remain under the upper sky, honouring the wall of louding, thundering Zeus. Leto bowed to his desire, and on the sacred island of Delmos bore him a twin deities, Artemis and Apollo. Memory lay with Zeus, and from her were delivered the divine muses, nine immortal daughters, Patronesses, patronesses of culture and all arts, and Themis gave birth to the three reverent fates, whom the unfortunate cascade as blind hags. Among the muses who dwell on the Mount Helicon, the province of Calliope is epic poetry, of Cleo history, of Uranian science, of Euterp, the music of the pipes, of Melpone tragedy, and Thelema comedy, of Telpiscor lyric poetry and dance, of Ureto love poetry, and of Palmenia sacred music. Sweet muses delighted in song and dance, but they knew also that true sadness may inspire poets to their greatest work. And like all deities, they are proud of their domain. The nine daughters of Pyrrhus of Pela challenged the goddesses to a singing contest and were turned into chattering magpies for their presumption when they lost. And once Thamris of Thrace the foremost musician of his age, desired to sleep with the muses, all nine, and his eyes, one blue, one green, sparkled as the thought. The muses agreed if he could demonstrate his superiority to them as a musician. He lost the contest, and they took his eyes from him, along with his talent. There was a lesson here for a pious man. If he takes the time to ponder it, it's a fool who vows against the immortals. Of the three fates, Clotho sits with her spindle and horrible, twisting and spinning out the thread that is assigned to every creature from birth to death. At her left hand, her sister Lachis, the dispassionate Opportuna, marks the length of the thread. By their side stands the implacable Atropos, ready to cut the thread at the chosen point and bring the life to an end. Just as the fates determine the length of mortal life, so also the ancient goddesses decide how long prosperity, health and peace are to last. And know this, if the length of a life is already determined, men must act with courage, for they will die anyway when it is their time. The titans were defeated, but still there were Challenges to Zeus's rule. Not long later, but after many centuries of human time, he had to face the giants, born of the blood of Uranus. The giants had various forms and features, just as do the creatures of men, the children of men, except that in place of legs they were sinuous strength of huge snakes, and they were wild and shaggy all over. They were a force of disorder and chaos rapists, thieves and murderers, and they could not be allowed to coexist with the new order. Things came to the head with the giants rustled the cattle of Helios, the sun god. It was the last straw, war was declared, and uncouth and unkempt giants stormed heaven with boulders and burning brands. There were so many of them that Zeus could not handle them alone, and for the first time the gods worked together as a team. Even so, they could not prevail against the hostile mob. For it was 
foretold that the giants could be defeated only by a force that included a mortal. But no mortal than alive would last more than an instant against the giants. This was not yet the age of heroes. It would be like pitting a candle flame against a tempest. And the giants knew this, were sure of the final victory. Zeus concocted an awful plan. The only human ally he wanted was Hercules, but Hercules was not yet born. Zeus reached into the future into the future and pulled Hercules back through time to help against the giants. To Hercules it seemed like a lucid dream, one never to be forgotten, a dream filled with fire and pain and awesome deeds. In desperation of Zeus's cunning, Gaia sought a unique herb that would give her foul children true immortality, even against Hercules. But Zeus, learning of her quest, forbade the sun and the moon and the dawn to shine, so that Gaia could not find the plant, and Zeus plucked it for himself. The greatest of the giants was Geoness, who could not be killed while he was in touch with the land from which he had sprung. The plain peninsula, Hercules shot Alcaneus with his bow, but no sooner had the giant crashed to the ground that he sprung up again, reinvigorated. Hercules was at a loss. Again and again he shot him, and every time the same thing happened. Then wise Athena told him Alcaneus' secret, and summoned indomitable sheep, and the giant fell into a deep slumber. While he slept, Hercules laid hold of him and dragged him off the plain. The giant awoke, briefly struggled, and breathed his last. But poor Theon, equal in might, so to his brother Alcaneus, and the leader of the giants, overwhelmed the goddess Hera and began to rip off her clothes, desiring to take her against her will. Zeus stunned the savage giant with a thunderbolt, and Hercules finished him off with his bow. Dionysius, surrounded by wild animals and riding into battle on a donkey whose braying towed his enemies, smote Eurythus with his Theseus staff, while foul Cletius fell before his flaming brands of the breeded witch goddess Hecate. Mimas died horribly, his blood boiled by molten metal pouring from Hephaestus's crucible. Fearsome Athena buried Enceladus under Sicily, and they turned to Pallas. She flayed him alive and wore his raw skin, sticky with blood as a shield. Poseidon broke off part of the island of Kos and crushed polyboats with it. Hermes, wearing Hades' cap of visibility, killed Hippolytus, and Artemis did away with Gratian. Apollo shot out the left eye of Ephialtes, while Hercules' arrow lodged deep in the other. The fates wielding massive clubs of bronze crushed the skulls of Theos, Theos and fierce Agrius. The rest were scattered by Zeus's thunderbolts, and to fulfil the prophecy shot down by Hercules as he raced after them in his chariot. Gia employed Zeus for the lives of her children, but he was not to be swayed. There should be none to challenge him. After bitter war, peace came to Olympus. For a brief while, the heavens were untroubled, and Zeus began to make provisions for his newly acquired realm. But then there arose a new contender for the throne of the world. Gaia was saddened by the defeat and death of her offspring. The giants, born of the blood of Uranus, 
but she had to admit that Zeus was proving himself a worthy king. She devised for him one final test, so that all might see his kingly qualities or his humiliation. Out of her most hidden depths earth heaved four terrifying monsters. A hundred snake heads sprouted from Theos's shoulders and forked tongues flickering from the mouths matching the fury flashes from two hundred eyes. But the sounds of gigantic creatures emitted were the worst. Not just the hissing of snakes, but the baying of hounds and bellowing of bulls and the roar of lions. Not just recognisable and comprehensive sounds, but sounds that never heard before since. They had meaning, but no meaning anyone could grasp. The part human, part serpent body of the beast was as strong as a mountain, and he advanced on Olympus with his confidence high, ready to institute a new and terrible order for gods and men. At the sight of the monsters, all of the gods fled to Olympus, to Egypt, and disguised themselves as unconscious animals. But Zeus came down from the high mountain to meet the challenge. Had there been onlookers, it would have seemed as though the land and the sea had consumed by a horrific storm. Swollen purple and black clouds shrouded the battle, and all that could be seen were flashes of fire and lightning, and the billowing and surging and whirling of clouds. The noise was abominable. The crashing of the thunder and the cracking of lightning, the hiss of flames exhausting in the sea, and the cries of pain from Typhius magnified a hundred times by a hundred howling heads. Zeus attacked without mercy, blinding the creature with fire and shriveling his heads black with lightning. Typhius leapt into the sea to exhaust the flames that erupted all over his body. But Zeus smote him again and again until the rocks of the battlefield melt with wax. The sea boiled and the tormented smoking ground shook and cracked open black and gaping walls. As Zeus finally hurled the monster into the greatest of these chasms all the way down to Tartarus and piled Mount Etna on top and pounded its roots deep into the ground, it contained Tythius forever. Only once in a while is he able to wriggle a bit and then mortal men, little do they know, say that Sicilian volcano is rumbling. But the sound of the volcano was no more than faint echoes of his voice of old, and its power of merest silver of Tythius formed strength. All he left behind were his children, the winds of destruction and the many-headed monsters Cerberus, the hellhound, that guards the entrance of the underworld with his three savage heads and towers of venomous serpents, the one, the nine-headed marsh-dwelling Hydra, two-headed Orpheus, protector of the red cattle of Gurnion, and the Chimera, whose four parts of those of a lion, but his tail was a living serpent, and a goat made on her trunk. And all three heads hissed and roared and spat with indiscriminate fury. Zeus had cleared the world of the most potent forces of disorder and chaos, a burden that would also fall on some of the heroes of later time. In proportion to their lesser abilities, by force of arms he had confirmed his right to the high golden throne of heavenly Olympus. In order to ensure ongoing stability, 
every major domain of life on earth was given into the care of one of the gods, so that each of his or her unique provinces and none should be dissatisfied. Above there spread the wild heavens, below the misty underworld stretched down to Tartarus, the place of woe. Between lay the surface of earth, great Zeus, the wielder of the thunderbolt and lightning, took for himself the heavens and halls of Olympus, but treated his two brothers as equals. Dark Hades became lord of the underworld, whose horse-loving Poseidon gained the surface of earth, and especially its waters. And so Zeus is the cloud-gatherer and hauler of thunderbolts, the shining lord of the sky and weather. Men pray to him for many things, for all the other gods obey his commands, but especially they pray for sufficient rain to impregnate the earth, so that their flocks fatten and their crops multiply. For high Olympians, he looks down on the earth and ponders his fate. Effortlessly, he raises a man up or brings him low, makes him crooked straight or humbles and proud. The earth trembles as he nods. If he descends to earth, he becomes a flash of lightning, and the scorched ground where he alights from his chariot is scorched. His majesty is second to none, and he may also appear as a soaring eagle, aloft and magnificent. He speaks to mortal men through the rustling of his sacred oak at Dodona. The oracle of Olympia is his, and the four yearly games there are sacred to him. Men think of Poseidon as a trident-bearing lord of the sea, and they pray to him for safety. For they and their craft are puny, and he is mighty, uncertain-tempered. But he is also the earth-shaker, the maker of earthquakes, when the very land seems to ripple like the sea and yearn to be water, and he delights in horses. For a free-running horse flows like the mighty wave, with muscles gleaming and towel streaming. All he has to do is stamp a hoof or strike a blow with his trident. The sweet water gushes from solid rock, his wife is Amatherite, who dwells in the booming of the sea and whisper of the seashells, though he had children by many another nymph than goddesses too. Poseidon drives over the sea in a chariot drawn by horses with braven hooves and golden manes, and at his approach the waves die down and the sea gives him passage. What can be said about Hades? No living man has ever beheld his face, and the dead do not return for his mereless domain he is the invisible one for death awaits all with with his staff he drives all in their time into the echoing vaults of his palace no one knows for sure where the entrance to his subterrane realm some say that it is in the forest west where the sun goes down to darkness others that certain caves and chasms conceive an entrance though the gloom of his underworld realm flint the fable Remnants of men of old, pale spirits, glimmering and forlorn, and dust and mist is all of their food, and the river Styx, never to be recrossed, surrounds the domain of Hades, and oceans surrounding the contents of the earth, and the Milky Way surrounds the heavens. Charon the ferryman, dreaded by all, transports the dead across the river to the eternal home. If they bring the coin to pay him, transports the dead across the river to their eternal home, if they bring the coin to pay him. Otherwise, they remain as pale ghosts 
whimpering feebly on the banks of the river and imploring all comers for a proper, a proper burial. But those who come are only the dead themselves and cannot help. This is the doom that awaits us, except for the few righteous and unrighteous. Those whose brief dances have pleased the gods are allowed to dwell forever on the Isles of the Blessed, or in the Elysian fields, where tempered breezes gently stir meadow flowers, matured by sweet springs and showers, but warmongers and tyrants, murders and rapists, perpetrators of all foul and ab abnormal crimes against God or humanity, or hospitality, or parents are cast into the depths of Tartarus and suffer endless torment. Hades is the lord of dead, but his lady Perseon shares his powers, and the souls of the dead are judged by three stern judges, the two wise son of Europia, by Zeus, Minos, and Redathemes of Crete, and Achaeus, son of Zeus and Aegina, and Hades, also Pluto, the giver of wealth, because all crops arise out of the under-earth and he bears rich minerals to re deep in the secret places. Well, guys, that was a very tough story, and it is longer than on all ones. Jesus, there was a lot of names in there. I thought the Norse gods one was tough, and I had to Google pronounce a lot of those names. Um, I hope you stuck through it, and uh, hopefully it gets easier than that one. But I hope you're having a good week. You've only got a few more days to the weekend. And I'll catch you on Friday for our regular story uh, episode. Thanks very much, guys. See you later.